Hallelujah. Father, we are so thankful this morning that the psalmist's prayer and this song we've just sung, Psalm 118, is answered in Jesus Christ our Lord. For ages, since the fall, since the garden, the cry, Lord, grant me your righteousness that I may see your face. That face-to-face fellowship before God Almighty, the holy inhabitor of the realms of glory in which there is no stain, no marring of his glorious presence was blocked, it was barred. We're exiles. Nothing dirty, unclean, nothing unholy, nothing sinful is allowed in the presence of the majesty of the perfect holiness of Almighty God. The seraphim guarded the way back to reconciliation with the Father, protecting the beauty and the glory and the holiness of God's presence from sinners such as us. We needed your righteousness in order to gain safe passage, reconciliation, redemption, and entry once again into the presence, relationship, and fellowship, and communion with the Holy God. And so this heart cry from the ages that a Messiah might come who could stand in our place, a mediator, a prophet, a priest, a king, sufficient to bear the weight of our sin, the weight of its wrath, and then to intercede on our behalf in the fullness of time arrived in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the prayer of every saint of old was answered all at once when our Savior rose from the dead, declaring victory over the wages of sin and signaling a welcome entry into those who would be in Him and trust Him and confess and place their faith in His righteous act on Calvary to satisfy the punishment of their sin. And now, through Him and Him alone, we may see your face. For believers in this room who have seen your face and the worship, as it were, this morning, we are thankful. Now we pray that we would see your face, as it were, a revelation of your presence, such that it resonates with our souls and draws us close to you in the proclamation of your word. We pray that we would see your face and the sweet fellowship of the saints who share together encouraging words and prayers of support and the, just the accounting and testimony of your grace towards us who believe. Lord, let all this be fruit for the growth of your kingdom and encourage your saints to endure. And I pray, Lord, as your word is proclaimed this day, that the lost would bow the knee before the sovereign Jesus Christ and cry out for his righteousness to cover their sin, that they might be welcomed into the presence of Almighty God, fully justified because Christ and his death on Calvary is sufficient to cover by his precious blood all of our stains and sins against him. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. May they sit deeper in our souls as a result of your word. Proclaim this day unto the praise of the holy name of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a glory, what an honor, what a privilege to gather in the name of Jesus and to behold his holy word today. This morning, let us continue. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis 31 as we continue to chronicle the life of Jacob as it is received in the Holy Scriptures. Today, as last week, we continue on the theme of Jacob's resolve or Jacob's repentance. In Genesis 31, our Scriptures will consider again today verses 1 through 17. Last week was 1 through 16. And even more specifically, we'll consider the hand of God in changing the heart of the patriarch, the one-time schemer and deceiver, as now stepping into his calling. 
The title of this morning's message, therefore, is Jacob's Repentance. What is repentance? Well, in case you've forgotten that Sunday school question of old, it's simply 180 degree turn. Repentance is turning from something and turning to something else. In Christian repentance, we turn from our sin and we turn to the covenant son. That is, we turn to Jesus Christ, to his righteousness and to his word. So this morning, even in the act of preaching and in the act of listening, we turn from our flesh. The things that we might prefer in our unsanctified, fallen human existence, we turn from our flesh and we turn to Jesus Christ, who is proclaimed in, his, in word and truth in his scriptures this day. Therefore, the aim of this message is to preach repentance from the life of Jacob or to proclaim the glories of repentance from the life of Jacob as well. As you're able, out of reverence for God's word, would you stand for the reading of the same? Listen as the scriptures are proclaimed in your hearing today. This is Genesis 31, verses 1 through 17. Here is the word of God. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then the flock bore spotted. If he said, the striped shall be your wages, then the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Verse 11, then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Verse 14, Then Rachel and Leah answered him and said, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us. He has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let me remind you of his theme from several Jacob sermons ago. That is the theme of remarkable grace. One of the intriguing paradoxes, that is, things that you wouldn't are surprised to see next to one another or might appear contradictory. One of the intriguing paradoxes in the life of Jacob is the prominence of his legacy. That is, he is named and recognizable recognizable through covenant history as one of the most important fathers of the faith. After all, God himself, the name often referred to him in the Old Covenant and into the New, 
as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, you might ask, seems like an unlikely candidate to bear the weight of this legacy. Yet his prominence is there in Scripture just the same. This, and in his name, his family line represents, in the course of redemptive history, an extremely important milestone. And we recognize this in spite of the troubled life he led. How could this be? The answer is remarkable grace. The testimony of Jacob as such is one of God's remarkable sovereign hand of mercy, ransoming and, and uh, changing, sanctifying that which sin had distorted and broken into something useful for him to glorify himself, to advance his kingdom, and to proclaim the gospel. This was recognized not just by observers reading his biography, but even by Jacob himself, as he later would testify to Pharaoh. We've referenced this verse before, but I think it bears repeating. You can find this in 47, 7 through 9. That is the account later in Genesis of him standing before the king of Egypt. He says the following, quote, The days of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. A pretty sober and humble self-assessment. I don't come anywhere close, Jacob says, to measuring up to the faith and testimony of my father Isaac or my grandfather Abraham. Nevertheless, here I am. Nevertheless, God's will is continuing on through my legacy by virtue of his power, sovereignty, and grace would be the spirit of his confession. We imagine, imagine if you will with me, the concerned prayers of Isaac and Rebekah these many years. So just a reminder, 20 years ago, Jacob set his face to Padan Aram. And we'll find in reviewing this story the reasons why he had angered his brother by stealing the blessing and something of an exile and a journey, sojourning towards the land of his future father-in-law Laban was necessary for this reason. But the plan was, after your brother's anger, Rebekah figured, after your, your brother's anger, Esau, had subsided, then you should return. But now it's been 20 years. Put yourself in Isaac and Rebekah's shoes. These many years, what, what kinds of prayers, what kinds of hopes, and what kinds of fears might they have offered to the Lord in the absence of their beloved son? Eventually, Jacob does return home, but not before two decades have passed. Twenty years his parents have had to reflect on the circumstances of Jacob's departure. He eventually comes back just in time to bury his father. And chapter 35, 35, 27 through 29 records this event. But this event was occasioned, that is the reason that Jacob returns, it's not, just because, it's not because he hears news of his father dying, but a change of heart has happened. And that's what's recorded in our scripture. A fundamental change in Jacob's soul <clears throat> is documented in our text. Otherwise, Jacob, I submit, would have never returned. He's not a guy wired in his personality, natural, sinful disposition to be very assertive or to take a leadership role. Instead, <clears throat> he was rather passive for these, two, uh, for these 20 years. Something has changed. By real repentance, though late in life, preceded by years of trouble, Jacob turns wholeheartedly in our text to the God of his fathers, in chapter 31. The changes in Jacob's life are especially evident as the reader compares his growing resolve in this chapter to his life and to his behavior in chapter 27, 
which records the stolen blessing plot. So grace is seen in Jacob's life in two ways, in summary and introduction here. The first is that in spite of his poor character, and in spite of his biography not being very heroic, nevertheless God used him in his sovereign plan. And then the second way we see the grace of God is changing his heart, even though Jacob is elderly at this time, and moving him to repentance. And so by those two measures, we see the work and the hand of God at least in his life. And what can we learn from this? Well, as with the thief on the cross, we all remember in the New Testament, the testimony of Jacob teaches us that today is not too late to turn from sin and, to, and turn to the provision and promises of Jesus Christ, the God of Bethel. Today is not too late, no matter where life finds you, no matter how old you are, today is not too late to turn from sin and turn to the promises of Jesus Christ, the God of Bethel. Jacob's journey of repentance is quite striking indeed, and I think we'll see that today as we compare two main passages. So if you want to flip back and forth with me, we'll be in two chapters, primarily speaking, chapter 27 and chapter 31. If we compare the old Jacob to the new Jacob, we see what God has done in his heart and how the change is manifesting itself. Here's a heading. Jacob's journey of repentance is from one thing to another, and here's four examples. Jacob's journey of repentance is from mama's boy to patriarch. So that's the first uh, point we'll consider. His second, secondly, his journey of repentance is from deceiver to judge. Thirdly, his journey of repentance is from false prophet to prophet. And fourthly, his journey of repentance goes from exile to heir. So those are our four main points today that I believe we can see as we compare chapter 27, the old Jacob, the mama's boy, with the new Jacob, the 31, stepping into his calling as patriarch. Jacob's journey is from repentance, or of repentance, is from mama's boy to patriarch. Turn with me to chapter 27 as you're able. Here we pick up on the story of the stolen blessing, right? So Rebekah, uh, Jacob's mom, has conspired with him because Isaac has plans to bless the older, Esau. Well, Jacob, prefer, I'm sorry, Isaac prefers Esau. That's his favorite son, the man's man, the hairy guy, who's a great hunter, skilled with the bow and the weapon, and can get the kind of meat that his father loves to taste in his mouth. Meanwhile, Jacob is something of a soft dude, tent dweller. He's mama's favorite. There's tension in the ranks, there's dysfunction in the home, there's strife, there's enmity. There's all kinds of sin that manifests itself. And things come to a head in chapter 27. Isaac's old, his eyes are dim, can't see very well. This kind of sets the stage. He's like, ah, one last thing I'd like. You know, in my, uh, I, can, I may not be able to see, just paraphrasing the heart of things, but I can still taste that game. So he sends his son on a mission, Esau, to get that wild animal that he loves. Rebekah's listening, verse 5. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speaking to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before, the Lord, before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats. You can almost sense the urgency the secrecy, the conspiracy, right, in the tone here, so that I may prepare them, for them, from them, delicious food for your father, just as he loves. 
and you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Verse 13, his mother said to him, of course, Rebekah speaking to Jacob, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. Go, bring them to me. And thus the story continues. The story opens here, though, with the mother's scheme. This is a, plot, a plan, a plot, a scheme, a conspiracy between Jacob and his mother to go behind the back of the father, <clears throat> you know, however short-sighted his goals might be, Isaac, and to steal the blessing that they know is rightfully Jacob's. And so this kind of dysfunction and favoritism marks the early years of, uh, of uh, Jacob's testimony. Dysfunction and favoritism were no strangers to Isaac's home. And on the other side of the coin, this is in contrast to something, and you can mark this down. Unity through mutual submission to the Lord and His Word. When we compare the strife and dysfunction of Isaac's home at the time of this, you know, the occasion of this scheme to steal the blessing, or the strife and dysfunction in the home of Jacob as his wives are competing for his affections through the account in Genesis 29, well, as we see in both of those cases, that the home is full of corruption and dysfunction. But when and how will the home be unified? Well, always and in every case, true unity comes the same way, by mutual submission. That is, all parties who are once with, at odds with one another submit to the Lord and to His Word. And this is what happens in Jacob's life in due course. Um, Rebecca lays aside, as it were, her uh, sinful intentions to sneak behind her husband's back and in a dishonorable and disorderly kind of way circumvent his intentions. And she lays that aside. Jacob lays aside his scheming and deceiving ways, his trickery and manipulation and living his life according to his wits in order to secure the best possible outcome. Esau eventually lays aside his um, impulsive attitude and appetites and murderous intent to kill his brother. And over the course of time, as God works in this family, there's a mutual submission to the Lord and to his word. Strife and partiality, that is favoritism, and all stems from selfishness. Strife and partiality plagued Isaac's home and Jacob's formative years and Jacob's home. But the application, even for our homes today, is a great vision statement for family worship. Through mutual submission, that strife and that partiality was confessed and repented of, and it was exchanged for unity that comes by submitting to the Lord and to His Word. And our text today, this is what Jacob does. He proclaims the Word of God to his family, and it changes the tone of the relationships entirely. Notice the difference between this scheme that we just read of and what's beginning to happen in chapter 31. Verse 4, Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah, into the field where his flock was and said to them the following. Pause there. Do you see what Jacob's doing? He's taking leadership initiative in his family as a patriarch or father leader should. He's calling the attention of those under his charge who he's responsible for to the standard by which they ought to live their lives. Now in the past, he's just let these ladies do their catfighty things and the whole family was in a state of disarray for quite a long time, we can assume. But now... Under the authority of the man stepping into his proper role, 
which is delegated authority from God, revealed to him by his holy word. He's calling attention to the one time women who are in, uh, of wives of his who are at one time at strife and enemies of one another. And he's focusing the attention of his household on the word of God. He said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. I want you to notice a contrast there. The father role of Laban versus the God of the fathers, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are two kinds of fatherhood that are evident in Jacob's confession. One is the fatherhood that leaves a poor example, a poor legacy, living by his might, by his riches, by his wits, by his best attempts to secure the future, independent of God's word. This is the kind of fatherhood that Laban represents. Verse 1, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. The favor of Laban for Jacob is not based on the word of God. The favor of Laban for Jacob is based upon how much, what can Jacob do for me? If Jacob can increase my flocks and herds, then I like having him around. If God blesses him and my flocks suffer in any way, I resent that. And his sons learn that same heart and attitude. We asked the question last time we were preaching from this text, what commandment did Laban's sons break? It's obvious, isn't it? The 10th, thou shalt not covet. If God blesses a Jacob, there must be a reason. And you should ask why God is showing favor on this man. Perhaps in the blessing of Jacob is the key to your own blessing. In other words, Jacob was the covenant son. Through him, the Messiah would come. God had spoken individually, personally, by revealing himself in dream and vision directly to this man. I would think you'd want a guy like that around. But nope, they resented an en out of envious jealousy, the one whom God prospered. And as a result, they walked in the footsteps of their wicked father. Laban and his sons were manifesting poor father leadership, a legacy of sin. As we said before, this is akin to what God prophesied, the seed of the serpent. This is the kind of heart attitude, behavior, and priorities and actions that the unsanctified, the sinner, and those who have the seed of the serpent, their father the devil, as Jesus would go on to say, this is how they act. But there's a sharp contrast. As opposed to the scheming of the father of Jacob's wives, namely Laban, there's a contrast. I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Jacob is demonstrating and proclaiming fatherhood convictions. We contrast these early beginnings of Jacob's experience, and the father was not honored. And in many cases, Isaac, in that situation, chapter 27, his actions weren't honorable. But Jacob has repented, and he realizes that fatherhood is a covenant means and a covenant model. You can mark that down, especially men, fathers. Fatherhood is a covenant means and a covenant model. In other words, God has designed fatherhood as the primary way for the next generation to be taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. The New Testament carries forth this charge by saying to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And in so doing... If your children submit and bow to Jesus Christ because of the godly spiritual leadership men here that you uh, train your children up with as you do family worship, as you lead them to Christ with your testimony and with your example and by your words, if you do this, 
then you are participating in a covenant means that is a way, an instrument, or a tool for the relationship of family to be the means whereby God transfers the faith of the fathers to the faith uh, uh, to the uh, children, so that their faith would be learned in the discipline, discipleship, nurture, and admonition of the home. This is what Jacob is modeling in his repentance in chapter 31. Wives, and presumably the sons are there too, and the one daughter, Dinah. Listen, God has spoken. This is what he said. These things are wrong. These things are right. This is where we're going. This is why. Because God has told us so in his revealed word. These are fatherhood convictions. A covenant means and a covenant model. God has ordained that a healthy relationship between parents and children, husbands and wives, fathers and children, is actually the language of redemption. That is, a healthy relationship between father and son or daughter helps us understand the, perp or the ideal relationship between us and God. God is our Father. We are adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sacrificially loves the church the same way a wife and a husband are meant to show love to one another in particular, the husband sacrificially laying down his life for his bride. So Jesus Christ did the same, leading her. And just as the church is submissive to Christ, so the woman is called to be submissive to her husband. Again, Ephesians chapter 5. Family is the language of redemption. Therefore, it is so important that family be sanctified, that the vision and calling of biblical fatherhood be maintained and promoted, that we repent to that standard like Jacob. And is it any wonder, is it any surprise that the enemy of our souls, the enemy of Jesus Christ, the serpent and his minions has declared war on the family? Is that any surprise? Now that war manifests itself in different ways in different times. There was a war on Jacob's family, manifested itself through polygamy and strife. You know, by the time all of the uh, circumstances were done, Jacob had like four wives. He had the two, and then each of them offered their maidservants, and it created all kinds of problems. The enemy was declaring war on the covenant seed, hoping to stamp out the cause of the Messiah. And don't be under any delusions, families listening to me. The enemy has declared war on your family as well. Will you stand against it? What weapons does he use to under to undermine or to seek to degrade or diminish or redefine God's very purposes of covenant means, whereby to transfer the faith to the next generation and covenant model, whereby to display the glories of the relationship of God to his people. Well, he does it through radical egalitarianism, eliminating all distinctions between God's holy and beautiful purposes and complementary roles between husband and wife. He does it by trying to redefine marriage as the preference of any two or more individuals, and mark my words, it won't be very long before marriage will be seen as not even limited to human beings. Why? Because the grounding of marriage, which is the authoritative, never-changing word of God, is under assault today. This is the enemy seeking to destroy the future means and model of the covenant of the gospel by attacking the family. How do we stand against it? We join with Jacob in repenting and proclaiming to the world as a model, and being faithful in our homes as a means, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mama's boy is becoming a patriarch. He proclaims his fatherhood convictions. He is acting totally different from his scheming ways before, and as a result, order and honor returns to his home. Notice in verses 15 and 16, this is the testimony of his wives upon the information, upon the proclamation that Jacob has given them. He's discipling his home as he speaks, 
And this is how Leah and Rachel respond. Are we not regarded by him, namely their father, as foreigners? For he has sold us and has indeed devoured our money. Pausing there, verse 15, implicitly, there are two camps. If Jacob is correct, you can align yourself with the principles of Laban's family, his philosophy, or you can align yourself with Jacob, who is going to lead his family by the word of God. And then he calls his wives to do the same. And so now it's the time of choosing. Will they, will they argue, protest? I want to stay here where it's familiar. Among my family with Laban, my father and his flocks, I, I want to stay here. No. Honor and order return to the home of Jacob. And this is how his wives respond. All the wealth, verse 16, that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Just a beautiful picture of submission. The crazy dysfunction of the past chapters now is kind of eclipsed by this picture of order and honor. And a certain uh, repentance has happened and the facts are taking their uh, foothold in Jacob's experience and in his family to the glory of God. There's a restoration happening. The mama's boy is becoming a patriarch. Major point number two, Jacob's journey from repentance of repentance is from deceiver to judge. Back in 27, to get our kind of before and after picture, we pick up on verse 14. So he went, this is Jacob, and took them and brought them to his mother. That was the uh, animals from the field that they're going to pretend was wild game. His mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the younger goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread uh, which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And so the plot thickens, right? The conspiracy continues. And mother and son in this birthright conspiracy have colluded together to deceive the father. Jacob at this time was a deceiver. No surprise though. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time. You remember Esau is weary and frustrated and hungry. And sometimes the best time to make a good decision is when a bad decision is when you're super hungry. So they kind of in a convoluted way. Let me rephrase it this way. It's probably not a good idea to make a big decision while you're weary, frustrated, or hungry. I know it's, that's the case for me. Well, Esau broke all these rules and Jacob exploited the circumstances one day when he came in from the field, and you remember, for a bowl of lentils, I always like to tell the story of one time I was deceived by a bowl of lentils. And this really has nothing to do with the story except to add a humorous anecdote. One morning I saw that my wife had made some cold cereal. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Put on a little milk and sugar and found it wasn't sufficient. I kept dumping sugar on it until I was finally able to choke it down, only to find later in the day that I had had uh, lentils with milk and sugar. Anyways, I wasn't hungry enough to appreciate that meal. But if you get hungry enough, Lentils with milk and sugar, you would die for it. And Esau was in this place, in this position. And he didn't die for this meal, but he did give up his birthright. But he did so because Jacob, as a deceiver, schemer, he exploited the situation to take advantage of his brother and his weakness. It was not something that a guy of righteousness, integrity, not something a patriarch would do. Not someone who was called to be an upstanding example of God's will and purposes in his life and decisions would do. Nevertheless, he did it, and now he's doing it again. Even worse, if it could be said now, he's scheming with his mother in another birthright or blessing conspiracy. 
recalling that bowl of lentils, this opportunistic scheme presented itself sometime before as selfish opportunism. And that, of course, is contrasted with righteous integrity. We don't see a righteous uh, Jacob full of integrity. In chapter 27, nevertheless, we see this plot hatched with his mother to deceive his dad. Now, this is in stark contrast to chapter 31. Jacob knows it's a risk to leave the employ of his father-in-law. His father-in-law is proved to be an even better schemer than Jacob. Jacob has met his match and been bested a whole bunch of times. His wages have been manipulated and changed ten times, he says. Notice what he says, though. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. You see, Jacob's faith is building. Even though it would be something of a risk to differ with Laban, to part ways and to leave, he is willing to follow God in this matter. Verse 9, thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And notice again, Jacob didn't trick Laban out of the livestock. This is the providence. This is the provision of God himself. Something has changed. Jacob is relying on the sovereignty of the Lord rather than the deceiving schemes that he and his mother used to come up with. And he goes on to explain how in the breeding season, by a revelation and the power of God, these animals were transferred to his account. Now, Jacob has gone from the deceiver to a judge. And why do I say that? Because Jacob is making a judgment call on the law of God as to the ethics of Laban versus uh, his situation. He has appealed to a higher standard of right and wrong than himself, that is the word and law of God, and has said that Laban has cheated him. And even though this wouldn't be likely uh, you know, to insult your father-in-law in the presence of your wives, you know, may not seem like a wise thing to do. Nevertheless, for the cause of truth and in the interest of righteousness and justice, Jacob is issuing a legal indictment. He's saying that I was cheated, it was wrong. Laban did not follow the contractual arrangement. Jacob, Laban, excuse me, was in breach of covenant. This is wrong. Jacob, the old Jacob, was a guy who manipulated covenants and arrangements and contracts to his advantage, finding the loophole and exploiting the weakness and, and the fine print in order to get his way. Laban is continuing to do this, but Jacob has changed. He's no longer the deceiver. Now he's standing as one who voices the word of God and saying, by the standard of integrity, righteousness, and truth that God has laid out, Laban is in the wrong. Jacob assumes the role of, a, of, an, of issuing an objective covenant lawsuit. This is something a prophet of old would do. As a, an objective covenant lawsuit prosecutor, he's appealing to a standard in law outside himself, and he's judging his father-in-law in breach of covenant, in breach of contract, according to the arrangement that they had, and judging all of this by the law of God. The deceiver now is speaking truth. The deceiver now is serving as something of a judicial voice. Furthermore, he says that God providentially has dealt justly with him. In verses 8 and 9, when he explains how the spotted and the mottled and the speckled flocks, which was the agreement, those can be Jacob's, that he and Laban made, how God supernaturally allowed all of these, you know, what would be mutations or blemishes to increase, it was an act of justice where God was taking from the lawbreaker Laban and then blessing the now law appreciator or law keeper Jacob as his heart is being changed. 
The deceiver has become a judge. The deceiver has, is beginning to stand on righteousness, declaring the just actions of God according to his will and of prescription. This is what God says is right. And providence, this is how God is acting accordingly by allowing Jacob's flocks to increase. So that was point number two. Let's go to three. Jacob's journey of repentance is from mama's boy to patriarch, deceiver to judge, and, finally, or, and thirdly, false prophet to prophet. Why do I say false prophet? Well, there's at least four of the Ten Commandments that are broken in these next verses I'm going to read. Kids, you want to play the Ten Commandment test? All right, if you remember, what you're listening for is what commandments does Jacob break in this situation, okay? So I'm going to read, and then I'll ask you that question. So listen, adults as well, and see if you can help out. Genesis 27, 18. So he, Jacob, went into his father and said, My father, he, Isaac, said, Here I am, or and he, Jacob, said, Here I am, I'm sorry, this is Isaac, Here I am, who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Yeah, what commandment, kids? What's that? Eighth commandment? Thou shalt not? Thou shalt not lie or bear false witness. Very good. I am Esau, your firstborn. Beep, beep, beep. Lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? Listen close. Here's another commandment test. He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. That is correct, Ren. Got it. In this instance, Jacob confessing that the reason he got the meal was because God blessed him and allowed him to take this wild game in a short amount of time. He was blaspheming the Lord. He was taking his name in vain. He was appealing to the name of God to make his story better for his father. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. Appealing to the person and the name of God in order to better yourself, to selfishly advance, while it's not according to truth. He has lied, and he has taken the Lord's name in vain. Then, of course, the story continues. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau, and he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau's hands. So he blessed him and said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered again, I am. Once again, kid. Yeah, what, what law? Yeah, very good. So thou shalt uh, not bear false witness, number nine. Now, so, but yes, you could say the eighth commandment as well. Thou shalt not steal. And the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. So there, there's four commandments that are broken just in this little exchange. And Jacob misrepresents, or he uses, exploits the name of God for his advantage, taking the Lord's name in vain. Jacob bears false witness, claiming to be his brother when he truly is not. Jacob wants the blessing. He has coveted what his father intended to give to his brother. And then Jacob conspires to steal that blessing to make it his own by circumventing God's ways of doing so through this scheme. Now, these are things that false prophets do. When Jacob was confessing falsely that he was his brother, when he was taking the Lord's name in vain, when he was expressing covetousness, this was proclaiming something that was untrue. He was speaking that which was not correct. He was misrepresenting the word and name of God, and in so doing, 
It was false prophecy, so to speak. Yet something has changed. We contrast this again with our text. And notice the different Jacob who proclaims in 31.11, Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I said, here I am. He said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, return to the land of your kindred. This is preceded by verse 10. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. And then the voice of the Lord in this dream calls him to lift up his eyes and see his provision again. And then the Lord himself says, I have seen. I just wanted to draw to your attention this lifting up the eyes language. We've noticed this before as a figure of speech in Genesis. For instance, in chapter 13, verse 14, and then 13, verse 10, Abraham and Lot both lift up their eyes. And scripturally, in context, what's in view here is, the direct, or is faith and affections, and desires, your purposes and goals, and that which, um, and your confidence in the Lord. That which you have faith in and holds your attention and you really love, that is the thing to which you lift up your eyes. Lot lifted up his eyes to the fields of the Jordan Valley there, the cities of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he thought, my flocks will prosper in this area. That was a materialism, a lust and a fleshly desire to which he lifted up his eyes. In contrast to that, Abraham was called in that same passage to lift up his eyes and behold the promises of God. And the Lord said, lift up your eyes and behold the wilderness. Well, in our text today, we're at one time Jacob lifted up his eyes to the blessing and benefit of that uh, going against his father's will and wishes and his brothers and so forth. He lifted up his eyes to the scheme to secure the promises. Now, in this dream, he's lifted up his eyes to the promises and provision of the Lord. Jacob feared, likely, because he wasn't super skillful, that he would, I mean, how is it that this guy, one time mama's boy tent dweller, now has all these riches and flocks that are spoken of in rival terms with Abraham who went before him? How did this happen? I mean, naturally, Jacob would probably fear, hey, I got to find a different way to make my lot. I'm not really gifted with weapons, you know, like my brother. But Jacob could trust the Lord, even though, and instead of trusting himself and his schemes, he eventually trusts the word and the promises of God. And he lifts up his eyes to God's purposes. And in this dream, which represents a change of faith and affections, Jacob is repenting. He's lifting up his eyes to Yahweh, the God of Bethel, Jesus Christ himself. He's lifting up his eyes to the provider, to the true covenant head, to the significant son, the Messiah to come. And he's allowing his faith and his affections to rest there instead of the old way, his sinful schemes. This Bethel revelation is what? It's that heaven's staircase touching ground. The angel of the Lord reminds Jacob who he is in verse 13. I am the God of Bethel. That would be Jesus Christ, heaven's staircase touching ground. Yahweh, who is Lord over the bridge between heaven and earth. And then he reminds Jacob, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. That is, lift up your eyes to the promises and the provision of God. Go back to the place where you remembered God's visitation. Set up that pillar, that altar. Go back to that place where you made a vow, a promise of obedience to walk in His ways. 
lift up your eyes to the promises and the providence and the direction of God. So Jacob, who is he saying this to? Well, his family. And in this sense, he is serving as a prophet. What does a prophet do? They speak to the people on behalf of God. And Jacob, who at one time was really good for nothing, it would seem in this area, has repented. He is now speaking to his family on behalf of God. He's sharing with them God's word. He's directing them that God has, as God has changed his faith and affections to do the same. I am, I am a different man now. I'm setting my face to obey the Lord. And I am speaking to you God's word so that you might join me. And when his wives say, yes, we will go, what are they doing? They're following him, his leadership, and saying, we will direct our faith and affections to the word and promises of God as well. The one-time false prophet is now prophesying as it were to his family. This brings up the final category this morning. Jacob's journey of repentance is marked from mama's boy to patriarch, from deceiver to judge, from false prophet to prophet, and finally from exile to heir. Let's go back one more time to 27. At the close of this scene, as you might imagine, Esau is really upset. So upset that he, could like, that he would like to kill his brother. Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, once again, the words of Esau, her older son, come to Rebekah's ears. So she comes up with yet another plan. She says, verse 40, she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, said to him, verse 42, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you here, bring you there, from there, excuse me. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? So you see this plan? Go away, let your brother cool down. I'll send a someone to bring you back. 20 years later, he's still in Paddan Aram, languishing in the employ of Laban, his tyrannical father-in-law. Quite the deal. He has become a fugitive uh, because of the consequences of sin. This is something of an exile experience, a banishment, consequences, punishment. And in this way, it's not an ultimate punishment, but it is a disciplinary one. And it parallels the experience of Adam and Eve cast from the garden. Adam and Eve had that fellowship and that communion with the Lord. Yet they sinned, and as a consequence of their sin, there was an exile, there was a banishment. And this uh, framework in Scripture of exile to represent the justice of God and the consequences of sin and the punishment and the judgment that we deserve is a theme throughout. And Jacob kind of lives out this theme. The sinner who was once exiled and banished and punished is brought back. He's the exile he returns to his inheritance. The opposite of exile is exodus. The people of God, they would uh, experience this same pattern, wouldn't they? Jacob's descendants. When they would be exiled in Egypt for a time, but then there would be an exodus, a calling out, and then a returning to the promised land. I was listening to an insightful theologian who had written a book called The Exile of Adam, I think, in the New Testament, something along those lines, The Exile of the Second Adam. And he brought up the point that Jesus was born 
um, in this world and began his ministry in the wilderness, as, so to speak. That is, Jesus was out there uh, experiencing the temptations of a fallen world for a purpose. But what happened is Jesus was faithful through his exile, even unto death, then taking on the sins of the world, and then arose resurrection and newness of life, teaching us this, that the only way to have safe passage from exile to exodus under, promised land, under the promised land is to be in Jesus Christ. This is why Matthew says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now you can be called out of Egypt, out of your sin, if you're in Jesus. You have to be associated with him, in covenant relationship with him. He is the son of David. He's the significant son to come. He's the one, the only one, human being, who was subject to temptation and did not sin. In his righteousness, as we sang before, we can see the face of God. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly, Psalm 118. O Lord, grant me your righteousness, that I might see your face. How has the Lord granted to us righteousness? He has done so through the God of Bethel. He's done so through heaven's staircase touching ground. He has done so through Jesus Christ, who brought his people out of exile, ultimately on the cross and by way of his death and resurrection. Jacob went from exile to heir as a picture of your experience. If you have repented of your sin, place faith in Christ, and now look forward to inheriting the promise of your own redemption, to be heirs with him of the new heavens and new earth, heaven one day. Jacob at one point was a fugitive uh, by means of his, uh, the consequences of his sin, but nevertheless, God prospered him and gave him promises we read of these in verse 16 and 17, and this led to a great family reunion. And skipping ahead a little bit, chapter 35, finally, in verse 27 we read, And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And the sons of Esau and Jacob buried him. Seems a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? Hey, come back and be reunited with the covenant family. After 20 plus years, he finally gets home, only to bury his father, short, presumably, shortly after his arrival. There is a family reunion, but it leaves you kind of hanging and wishing for something more. Is this truly the happy ever after that the covenant promises? One final verse I'll turn you to. As we close this message and make application for our lives, it's found in Hebrews 11. The experience of Jacob and all the saints that went before served as, served as a pattern of things to come. And their fullness and the understanding of what happened can only be realized through Jesus Christ. This is a huge theme in the book of Hebrews. And 11.39 picks up on this when the author says, And all these... So among them, chapter 11, he's included the experience of Jacob. It says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So that family reunion, pausing there, that family reunion of going back to the land of Canaan was just a partial fulfillment. It was a type, it was a shadow. But wasn't the full manifest reconciliation that the covenant promised? Chapter 12 continues. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
the testimony of these truths, like Jacob who went before, continued to read, let us, this is a message to you and me, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is ultimate inheritance, to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and Jesus is there right now waiting for us. Do you believe it? Do you believe that if you are in Jesus Christ, you too will be ascended from the grave, as it were? You too will be resurrected unto newness of life? You see, the old Jacob reunion, family reunion was just a type and a shadow. It wasn't the fullness. It didn't really represent or encompass all that the power of the covenant son to come would accomplish. Let us run with endurance. And who should we look to? Not Jacob. Jacob was an unlikely patriarch. We're to look to Jesus, the perfect sinless one, the God become man, uh, God become man uh, the, the one who is our sufficient savior, our mediator, our prophet, our priest, and our king, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, that is, the blessing, the inheritance, and the reward promised to him, the title deed, as I often say, to all the nations of the earth that was given to him by way of prophecy in Psalm 2, and then received by him by, at his ascension, according to Daniel 7, that he, and then we will join him as we read in our worship text as well this morning, becoming uh, rulers on the earth with Jesus Christ. This is the joy that was set before Jesus. He, the perfect son of Jacob, as it were, the perfect, significant covenant son, endured the cross so that if those who are in him and look to him will enjoy his experience one day. He who endured the cross, Jesus Christ, paying the payment for our sins, despising the shame, that is, not being embarrassed to take on the weight of God's purposes in redemption. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he, with Jacob and all that have gone before, are beckoning us. Come on, keep running, look to the gospel, repent of your sin, and believe. Follow Jacob in his pathway of repentance, so that whatever you were in your old man, you can turn from and turn to Jesus Christ. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of your scriptures, which offers such great hope to us. We see it prefigured and manifest in all by way of symbol and shadow and type, but man, it's amazing to see how in Jesus, the fulfillment and the promises and the significance and the meaning are just exemplified, magnified, and available to us who repent and place our faith in him, turn from our sins and trust in Jesus as our perfect savior. I pray for believers in the sound of this message who are struggling with areas of weakness and indwelling sin, that they would turn from that sin and place faith in Christ as their faith is encouraged today, that we would be more like you. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be sanctified, to be disciplined by the proclamation of your word and by the things that you ordain in life to, so as to be transformed in the image of our Lord. For those in the hearing of this message, who, do, who fall outside the camp, who are not in Christ and therefore have no hope as of yet to come out of the Egypt of sin, I pray that they would join us by repenting and believing that Christ alone is their salvation, that they would see the glorious hope of the gospel in the scripture, and that they would say, I must turn to Jesus Christ. I need him. 
I have broken his law, and only in him is the perfect righteousness. O Lord, grant us your righteousness through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, that we might see your face. In his name we pray. Amen.